Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 12, Jim Remar and Coffee at the Cosmo. I'm your host, John Molnix, and I'm a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere. You can catch me on this podcast and on my other show, The Space Shot. Today, we've got some audio from Jim Remar's Coffee at the Cosmo presentation from just a few days ago. But before we hear from Jim, we're going to talk to Carla about the upcoming Earth Rising Gala here at the Cosmosphere. This is shaping up to be the space celebration of the season, and the Cosmosphere has quite the guest list of confirmed attendees. There's even a few we can't mention here yet, but suffice it to say, I got pretty excited when I heard who could be attending. I've got a few notes to share here before we hear from Jim and Carla. This is episode 12 of the podcast, and this marks officially the one-year anniversary for the show. I want to thank everyone that joins us here each month. We greatly appreciate having your ears. I host and produce this podcast because the Cosmosphere has been a part of my life since I was a little kid. I love coming here, and I know that many of you that listen to this show have been to the Cosmosphere before, and you love coming here as well. You could do us a favor by sharing this podcast with your friends or leaving a review on iTunes. This show's a labor of love, and I hope you'll continue to join us each month. Thank you. Now, let's jump into my conversation with Carla. Um, Today I'm talking with Carla Stanfield. We're going to be giving you a little bit of a preview of what's coming up at the Earth Rising event here in December. Carla, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again, John. So there's a lot that's happened since we talked last. We've got some confirmed guests, and then you've got a little bit more information on the event. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So I might just start with our guest list here because it is rather exciting for us. We have astronauts Jim Lovell, Walt Cunningham, Charlie Duke, Fred Hayes, Jack Lausma, and Harrison Schmidt joining us for the evening of the December 1st Earth Rising here in Hutchinson. And then for Mission Control crew, we have Arnold Aldrich, Jerry Bostick, Charles Dietrich, Jerry Griffin, Charles Lewis, Glenn Lunny, William Moon, Frank Van Renessler, and Milt Windler. That's quite the list. It really is. We are so excited to have all of these folks in one room again. We feel like it's been several years since they've probably been able to get together um, as this large of a group. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm glad I'm coming out for this one. So there's going to be, you know, obviously VIP tickets have already sold out. VIP tickets sold out within an hour okay. of the ticket sales opening. However, we are um, still selling our general admission tickets. Okay. Ticket sales right now are still just for members until the 29th we open to the general public. But I do encourage folks that are interested to get on that ticket. Uh, give us a call straight away because they did go very quickly when we open to members and I anticipate when we open to the public it'll be the same okay so if you're really wanting to guarantee yourself a spot just snag a membership here at the Cosmosphere you can come visit the museum uh, before the Earth Rising event and then have fun at that event so I think it'd be a good thing to do if you're wanting to make sure 
you don't have to worry about getting a ticket. <laughs> Absolutely. And they still have, you know, this next week, you can still join as a member. Marla Erickson is more than happy to help you. Best way to contact her is call her directly. That's 620-665-9320. Or you can email her, Marla, M-A-R-L-A-E, as in Erickson, at Cosmo.org. Perfect. So you've got a little bit more information um, regarding this event, too, and it's about the silent auction. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the cool things that are going to be up for grabs? Sure. We do have some exciting silent auction items right now. We're still working on several, too. So we have an Apollo 11 capsule signed by Michael Collins, a Saturn 5 model also signed by Michael Collins. We have an Apollo 13 limb model signed by Jim Lovell. Um, a couple of books signed by Buzz Aldrin, a book signed by Michael Collins. We have several posters. So we have an SR-71 poster signed by um, a lot of the pilots from the 70s. We have an Apollo 15 poster signed by Gene Cernan. We'll have our Omega watches that you may have seen present at a couple of other silent auctions. Uh, we will have some other jewelry donated by Dick Westfall from here in town. Um, so we're really, we'll have a fair number of Apollo era memorabilia items, but also just space related general items for the collector who might be looking for something outside of the Apollo era. Very unique Christmas gifts. Absolutely. <laughs> One of a kind, I'd say. For sure, for sure. And there's going to be some more events before the Earth Rising event in December. Can you tell us what's going to be going on here uh, until December 1st? Sure. So ahead of the event, just to kind of um, build a little momentum, we are going to be showing a documentary. It's called First to the Moon, the Story of Apollo 8. It's a special screening on Friday the 30th, November 30th at 7 o'clock in our Cary Digital Dome Theater. It's $8 a person. And the the director of the film, Paul Hildebrandt, will be with us. So you'll be able to watch the film and then there'll be a Q&A section with him following that. If you'd like tickets, please call the box office, 620-665-9312. Again, that's Friday the 30th at 7 for First to the Moon. And then on the 1st, December 1st, at 10 o'clock in our planetarium, we're going to have a book discussion with Robert Curson, who wrote Rocket Men. He's also going to be our moderator the evening of Earth Rising event. He'll, he'll moderate the panel discussion during that. Um, but ahead of that, here at the Cosmosphere that morning, you can come and discuss Rocket Men, his book, with him in person, which we think is pretty exciting. It'll be a lot of fun, for sure. If you purchase Rocket Men in our gift store, which you can do in person or online, that uh, Q&A is free. You'll get a little pass to come to that. Or if you want to just come and participate or you already have the book, the ticket will be $5 at the door. That is a great deal. Uh, and I've interviewed uh, Paul Hildebrandt before, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that because I backed that project on Kickstarter. So it'll be cool to see it on the dome screen. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> looking forward to that, to that. 
Um, Carla, is there anything else? I think that's about it at this point. I would say stay tuned to social media and obviously the podcast for updates. Um, but we would look forward to seeing you all at Earth Rising. Definitely. I'm looking forward to coming out for it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I really want to reiterate what Carla and I spoke about. You should get tickets for this event as soon as possible if you're interested in attending. The guest list is phenomenal, and it's going to be an incredible night. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Next up, we get to hear from the CEO of the Cosmosphere, Jim Remar. Jim recently gave a talk at the monthly Coffee at the Cosmo event. The audio is a bit rough on this one, so bear with us on that. We're still working on figuring out how to record these events and it's a little bit difficult for me to assist in recording because typically I'm in Colorado when the Coffee at the Cosmo happens. I've got a few ideas that we'll continue to try each month, so bear with us as we figure these things out. Now, let's listen to Jim's presentation about Apollo and the Moker console restoration. Enjoy. Today I want to talk to you about a exciting project that is happening here at Hutchinson. But before I do that, I want to thank our corporate partners uh, who helped make this possible. So I want to thank Airshare, KU School of Engineering at the University of Kansas, Playworks, Disability Supports of the Great Plains, and Billings. Uh, through these corporate partners, we're able to bring the fantastic programs that we do uh, to you every year. So Spaceworks, everybody has heard about Spaceworks, our restoration Fabrication division, yes. So SpaceWorks has done some of the most historic restoration of spacecraft in the world. And the project that they are currently working on, in my opinion, uh, ranks right up there as one of the top projects that this company has ever done. So when we think about space exploration, oftentimes the first thoughts that come to mind are the astronauts, uh, the guys that got on top of the rockets and launched, uh, are typically the ones who are recognized as the American heroes. And while that is definitely true, oftentimes we forget these guys. The men, and today the men and women, who man the consoles that make the missions happen. So for those guys, and today men and women, to be able to go up into space, there needs to be a whole support crew that allows them to do that, and without that support crew, that mission wouldn't be possible. And so it's the mission control team that helps make this exploration of space um, possible today. And some of the most well-known mission controllers were the Apollo era, uh, the Gemini and Apollo era mission controllers uh, that helped get man to the moon to fulfill Kennedy's uh, promise of reaching the moon by the end of the decade. And so the historic and what many consider to be the cathedral of manned space exploration is this nondescript building on the large campus of Johnson Space Center. That is the heart and soul, or was the heart and soul, of the Apollo program. And so it was the engineers that worked in that nondescript building that allowed our astronauts to ultimately land on the moon. And that room was deemed a National Historic Landmark in the 80s. It was used up through the early shuttle. And then when the shuttle moved to a new mission control room, 
that was the, the original Mission Operations Control Room was deemed a museum of sorts. Unfortunately, NASA failed to take care of it. And I'll talk about that later. So this is the Mission Control Room. And you notice there are no windows on the building. When you have crews in space, whether it's in a spacecraft, Apollo or shuttle, or space station, you have to have engineers and ground crew that support that. And so this is one of the few buildings in the United States that was built to maintain 24-7 operations, regardless of the conditions. So remember last summer, uh, Hurricane Harvey, and it decimated uh, the Houston area. While many people in Houston were evacuating, this building maintained control of a space station. So the controllers who worked the control room stayed there even through Hurricane Harvey. Today, this is named after the person I consider the godfather of mission control, Chris Kraft. So the Christopher C. Kraft Jr. Mission Control Center. Chris Kraft was one of the first mission control engineers to come on board NASA in the early 60s. And Chris Kraft was the one who really developed what we know as mission control today. And he was the one who put together the procedures and the checklists that allow our astronauts to get up to the up to uh, space. And Chris Kraft uh, was so instrumental in the early manned space program that they decided to name the Mission Control Center after him. So when, if you are fortunate to get onto Johnson Space Center, you can go into what is called Building 30, the Mission Control Room. But you can see that it is a very secure building. So the importance that these controllers play in the success of the mission is so great that the security level, or level security, uh, is such that the access up into the room is incredibly controlled. The flag of Christian Kraft that sits out front of the Mission Control Center. And then there's a picture of Chris Kraft uh, in Mission Control during the Apollo program. These are, in my opinion, three icons of early manned space program. Chris Kraft, who I talked about. Bob Gilruth. Dr. Gilruth was the first center director of what eventually became Johnson Space Center. And then this gentleman here. We're getting ready to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8. That mission would not have been possible without George Lowe. George Lowe was the engineer who decided that we needed to get our astronauts to the moon. There was a fear that the Soviets were getting very close to achieving a lunar orbit, a manned lunar orbit. At this time, when George Lowe decided it was, it was the right time, to send our astronauts to the moon. We were having issues with the Apollo spacecraft, with the Saturn V booster, the lunar module. And many wondered whether NASA was going to be able to 
fulfill Kennedy's objective of reaching the moon by the end of the decade. Even though there were all these issues, George Lowe, when he was on a tropical beach somewhere in the Caribbean on vacation, came up with the idea of jumping over a mission to send the Apollo 8 astronauts to the moon. And so he sold it to Dr. Gilruth and to Chris Kraft. And once those two okayed it, within 16 weeks, NASA mobilized and successfully sent men to the moon for the first time on that Apollo 8 mission. So in my opinion, that's why I consider Apollo 8 to be the greatest mission. <laughs> yes, Apollo 11 fulfilled Kennedy's objective and we touched down on the surface of the moon prior to the end of the decade. But without George Lowe, Dr. Gilruth, and Chris Kraft, Apollo 11 wouldn't have happened. And it was Apollo 8 that paved the way. And it was because George Lowe believed so strongly in his engineers that they decided to go for it. That's Chris Kraft today outside of Mission Control. So Mission Control, it's a nondescript room. We've got rows of consoles. This is a viewing room and then the front screen. While it's nondescript, it's incredibly important to achieve the objectives of the missions. So this is what mission control looked like six months ago. So this room, again, what many consider to be the cathedral of manned space exploration, had been neglected for years, literally abused. There's a door over here and a door here. So this was used as a passageway by NASA employees. <coughs> NASA employees would come and sit at these consoles and eat their lunch. <laughs> Let's say mom and dad were in it. I was an engineer there at Mission Control. Let's go show mom and dad and let them sit at the flight director's console and get their picture taken. Or maybe, you know, we've got a couple of VIPs in, we'll let them around. This room was so dilapidated and worn that it, it was really a shame. It would be like if Shannon, is she here? No, she's not. It would be like if Shannon didn't care for artifacts down in the museum and we allowed our museum exhibits to deteriorate to the point where we were not properly caring for the artifacts. That's what was happening here. <coughs> Fortunately, there were people within NASA's structure that decided that that could not continue. This historic room needed to be preserved for generations to come. And so the city of Webster, Texas, where Johnson Space Center sits, kick-started a fundraising campaign to raise the money to restore this room. And so two and a half years ago, the Cosmosphere was called by NASA to see if there was interest in the Cosmosphere Spaceworks Division being part of the restoration team. Well, we didn't hesitate too long to provide an answer. <laughs> of course, the Cosmosphere 
jumped at the opportunity to be a part of one of the most historic restoration projects in the history of man's space exploration. This is the room that called the Eagle Dam. This is the room that called the Apollo 8 um, to walk them through the translunar insertion um, when humans went to the moon for the first time. This is the room where they troubleshot the Apollo 13 mission. This is the room where they talked to Harrison Schmidt and Gene Cernan when they stepped off the surface of the moon for the last time. So all of the iconic events that you can think about in early man's space exploration happened here. Even early shuttles happened here. So the first shuttle launches were controlled out of the room. And so there is a preservation team that is working to restore this entire room. So the wall panels, the screenings, carpet, ceiling tiles, everything is getting restored. So the walls, ceiling, carpet are either being restored or returned back to their original material when the mission control room first opened up. The screens are all getting restored. And then SpaceWorks is restoring all of the consoles. And so what does that mean? I'll talk to you about that in a little while. First, I want to show you why it's imperative to restore mission control. So this is the original mission control that was at Kennedy Space Center. And that was the control room that controlled all the Mercury missions in Gemini 3. So you would think this would be a National Historic Landmark and Preserve, right? No. No. That's what happened to that historic building. And unfortunately, that's what's happening to a lot of NASA's historic structures at the Cape and the Johnson Space Center. One of the, what I consider to be the most significant buildings down at Johnson Space Center was the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. So when the Apollo astronauts came back, especially uh, the early 11 uh, and 12, they were in the mobile quarantine facility. That quarantine facility was then put uh, into a lab where the astronauts were isolated to undergo testing. All the lunar samples went into this laboratory. The Apollo command module went into this laboratory. Well, today, Johnson Space Center is getting ready to tear that laboratory down. So this is what is happening to our historic structures at our space centers. Wow. And this was what was happening in historic mission control. These are NASA interns working at NASA for the summer. I'm sure a great group of people probably went on to do wonderful things. But this particular night, or last night there at the Space Center, they gathered in mission control, watched the movie Apollo 13, at a pizza party, and then afterwards, all stood around the flight director's console for their picture. So this is the type of thing that was happening in this cathedral. It would be as if, for us, if someone were to routinely climb inside Apollo 13, who wouldn't let that happen? So why would we finally miss it? <laughs> so this is the interior of the Mercury Mission Control. 
So again, this was the control center. I'm sorry, this, yes, this is the mercury. So this is the control center that controlled all the mercury and then Gemini 3. It was after the Gemini 3 mission then that they moved to the Mission Operations Control Room in Texas. This is mission control in Texas during the Gemini mission. So you can see the big monitors up front and then the usual consoles. Now this is launch control. So mission control does not control the mission at launch. Launch control does at Kennedy Space Center. So from the point they begin their countdown, the rockets fuel, the astronauts are up and ready to go until liftoff, everything is controlled out of this room. Once the rocket clears the tower and is up, then it switches to Johnson Space Center. <clears throat> so mission control at Johnson Space Center takes over from the point after liftoff until splashdown. So every aspect of the mission is controlled out of this room. So you see how consoles are lit up, data and telemetry are on the front screens. Mission control as it is today is, is pretty static. So when a visitor comes in and they stand in the viewing room, they see an inactive static mission control. So part of what the restoration team is going to do is we are going to bring mission control back to life. So when a visitor comes, it will be as if the mission controllers left their consoles to go to lunch with the intent of returning and resuming their responsibilities. <clears throat> so what does that mean? Well, <clears throat> the historians feel, again, that Apollo 11 was the significant achievement of manned space exploration. So the room itself will be returned to as it was during the Apollo 11 mission. So the data and telemetry that will be shown on these screens will be the data and telemetry that was being displayed during the lunar landing of Apollo 11. Carpet, ceiling, everything in the facility will be returned to as it was during Apollo 11, including the binders, consoles covered with flight checklists, ashtrays, coffee months. We will have all of that representative of that period in time on these consoles. In fact, we're recreating the shelving units. So each console, in front of each console, there would have been shelving units that these engineers could access the manuals. So all of that is getting recreated by the preservation team. And then our team is reanimating all these consoles. So not only are we preserving them, so what our team is presently doing over at Whiteside is disassembling the entire console, going in and cleaning the console, removing corrosion, dust, debris, removing the hardware, and then applying paste wax that prevents further oxidization. Then we're going to take it a step further. So we're going to relight switches and the buttons as they were during the Apollo 15 mission 
So why is one part of the restoration Apollo 11 and the other part Apollo 15? <clears throat> flight directors and flight controllers felt that the height of technology during the Apollo program was Apollo 15. Switched from the H missions to the J missions, Apollo 15, which meant we went from man walking on the moon to man driving on the moon. So the J missions were the three missions where we used the lunar rover. And so the technology needed to control that operation was a little different, a little greater than what it had been on previous missions. So the flight controllers felt, because that was the high point of their technology during the Apollo program, they wanted their consoles to be returned to them. So we've done a lot of research to determine which switches and buttons were lit, what would have been showing on the screens. And so when we reinstalled these consoles back in Houston, the console will be again as if the flight controller had left. That the console will be lit. There will be data, original data, and telemetry on the screen, and it will represent what it would have looked like during that program. There's just some images of mission control. This is during the Apollo 11 mission. So, right now, over at Spaceworks, we've got this first drone, which is called the Trench. The guys in the Trench took over. <laughs> during the launch. So they were the ones watching the boosters for the F-1 engines, the telemetry data to make sure that the spacecraft was on course and on the right direction. And we've got a second row as well over at Spaceworks. And we're about a month out, less than that, from returning that, those first two rows to Johnson Space Center. On November 7th, NASA is flying in the Super Company. So if you've ever seen a picture of the super gummy, it looks like a beluga whale, sort of, or a blowfish. It's a huge ship, an airplane, that is used for large cargo transport. And how they load it, the whole nose of the gummy swings out. And then you drive up the cargo into the ship. So NASA's flying the super gummy into Wichita. They'll truck the consoles down to Wichita. And then NASA's loadmaster will load the consoles, the first two rows of consoles, up onto the super gun. Then on November 8th, the gunny will depart Wichita for Ellington Air Force Base in Houston. And upon arrival at Ellington, it will be greeted by the retired flight controllers and flight directors. And they will be the first ones to greet their newly restored consoles as they come off of the super then we'll truck the consoles to Johnson Space Center and we'll put them in storage. Uh, while we're there, then we'll get back to those. So this row here, and this row, including the iconic flight director console, we'll truck them back to uh, Space Woods. And then the objective is to complete all of the restoration and then the reinstallation and reanimation of the consoles prior to the 50th anniversary of the following month. So that's when this control room will open back up to visitors and to the public for appreciation. Again, this is during the Apollo 11 mission. Charlie Duke, he was the Capcom 
Falling the Eagle down to the surface of the moon. Charlie will be here at our event December 1st. So not only was he a moonwalker, but he was a Capcom during that Apollo 11 mission. And that console will be out of space for us uh, when the retired astronauts like Charlie Duke and the retired mission controllers and flight directors are here. And so as part of, of the event, we're going to take them out uh, to spaceworks to allow them to, to see their consoles um, as they're being restored. Ceremonial lighting, this is ours. After every successful mission, stars are lit. And then obviously Apollo 13 uh, was trouble shot. Fred Hayes during the broadcast prior to the explosion, Gene Kranz at his console. And then after the explosion, Mission Control went into hyperactivity to try and figure out how to get the astronauts home safe. And obviously, they got the crew back there to level and everything. And you'll notice, even though they didn't play on the moon, Gene Kranz had a ceremonial cigar in his mouth. This is what Mission Control looks like today. In fact, this control room is directly below the historic Mission Control. So during the Apollo program, this room was set up like Mission Control, what we call the front room. This is the back room. So you may have heard about our consoles at the Cosmosphere homes. And if you've seen the movie First Man, or if you're going to go to see First Man, the mission control in that movie is the Cosmosphere's consoles. Those consoles came from this room. So the front room guys are, all, are the ones who got on the board. But for every controller that sat in the front room, they had their counterpart in the back room. And their counterpart was helping them read the data and telemetry, helping them troubleshoot issues. So there was a lot of backroom engineers that helped make the frontroom guys in their work possible. And so our consoles came out of here, and then they moved mission control down into this area. And you'll notice it's basically just a lot of computer screens. So it's quite different technology. In fact, the technology in the historic mission control was so at that time, ahead of the times, that the computing power of those consoles was greater than anybody had experienced. But today, you have more computing power in your phone than the mission controllers had sitting at their consoles during the Apollo mission. So again, going back, this is what mission control looked like before the restoration started. You see the ceiling barely up here. That's all gone today. Uh, the wall covering uh, has been removed. Uh, they're starting to remove the flooring. And then our team went in and started with the consoles. <coughs> so there's Shannon. <coughs> and 
the Space Force team went down uh, early this year, I think it's in February, and started to make preparations to remove the first two rows. So before they even started removing anything, Shannon has a catalog of current conditions and consoles. And so before we started taking the consoles out, you can see Shannon's tags. She went console by console to identify the console, the hardware, and the condition before we started to remove it. So then our Spaceworks team began removing the consoles. This particular room is the SIM control room. So through this window, this is mission control. So these were the good guys out there. The SIM control room were the bad guys. The flight directors and flight controllers and the SIM guys like the buttheads. Because the SIM guys were the ones that made the flight controllers jobs miserable during training. So during training, when a mission was being prepared for, when they were preparing for their mission, the controllers would be out here and working through the checklists as they would during the mission. But these guys in here were the ones that would throw anomalies at the flight controllers. And it was in an effort so the mission controllers could prepare for any type of issue or contingency that may have come up. But these guys out here and these guys so, the first consoles we did remove were the SIM control room, and this room, which really hasn't been viewed by the public, will also now be part of what the lizard is to see. So, we started moving the consoles out, and we devised special lifting mechanisms uh, to get the consoles out, lift them up, get them out, and then we had specific pallets um, that fit each console specifically um, to allow for safe transport. And like any good federal project, you've got to have all your safety gear. And like any good federal project, you have people who don't know what they're doing, <laughs> but stand there anyway. <laughs> So then once the consoles arrived at Spaceworks, we began disassembling, taking the panels off, and then removing a lot of the hardware. The monitors in the consoles were all the old CRT two monitors. We had talked to NASA about storing those and reintegrating them back into the console. But NASA was concerned about 50 plus year old technology catching fire, blowing up, things like that. So what we did is we're taking all the old CRTs out. Shannon is cataloging those for NASA. And then we're reinstalling our new LCD screens um, that will have a display that looks very similar to what the old CRT did. That's that side of the CRT. You can see the tube here and the front monitor. So this is an example of what a console will look like um, when it's restored. So you can see the data, the telemetry on the screens. 
that we have reprogrammed uh, to match what would have been on the screen to the mission. And then we'll begin lighting up the consoles. And one thing that we have found is that after the Apollo program ended, the consoles then were used for showing. So a lot of the hardware that was that was presently in the consoles was unique to the shuttle program. So working with NASA, we had to try and find Apollo-era hardware that NASA had in its inventory. And where we could, we reintegrated the Apollo hardware, the appropriate Apollo-era hardware, into the console. Where we can't, our team is reproducing replicas of that exact hardware. So we're creating high-fidelity replicas of the hardware and then reinstalling that into the console. So, in closing, again, this is just an incredible project for the Cosmosphere to be a part of. And I'm really proud of our team that is working on this project and the fact that our organization uh, has been chosen to help care for incredibly historic room and aspect of our American space program. So, we'll be Finishing up here, the first two rows, as I said, and then going down in November uh, to get the last two rows. And with a little bit of luck, we'll be done before the 50th anniversary next July. So with that, I'll open it up for questions. Yes? Now, this is restored. Will it be usable? Will they, uh, so the question was, we're restoring them, but will they be usable? The answer is no. Um, our charge was not to <clears throat> bring them back to life, so to speak, um, to, to make them usable again. Um, we were hired to preserve them and then to reanimate them at a moment in time. Um, so while screens will, will light up and whoops, screens will light up and Buttons will light up. The consoles are not functional. Yes. You mentioned your restoration team. How many people are involved? So we've got four uh, technicians, craftsmen. Uh, Jack Graber, our vice president of uh, technology and exhibits, heads the team up. Uh, Dale Caps, our spaceworks manager, and then he has two craftsmen, Don Ike and Jim Franco, and then Shannon Wentz will make sure they all stay in line. <laughs> yes. Uh, good question. So the question was: the console that is downstairs in the museum is it a replica or is it a real one? It's a real one, but it's not from historic mission control. It's it's from one of the back rooms. So it was used during the Apollo program. Engineers would have been at that console, but it was a backroom console, not a front console. Good question. Yes? How long ago was this facility uh, vacated? Uh, the question was, how long ago uh, was um, the Mission Operations Control Room uh, vacated? 88-ish, uh, somewhere in that time span. Yes? The uh, upstairs in the Yes, so the question was the consoles that are up in uh, education, in the camp area, in our mission control, 
uh, similar to the museum console. Those are real consoles from Houston, um, but again, they were backroom consoles, not frontroom consoles. But they are consoles, and our camp participants get to sit at the same consoles that engineers sat at during the public program. Yes? When this is complete, will it be open up to the public? Right. Or is it scenario? Great question. So the question was, when it's complete, will it open up uh, to tourists? Uh, the answer is yes, um, but not as it was. So part of the reason why the city of Webster donated a significant amount of money to the project was obviously the importance that NASA Johnson Space Center has played to the city of Webster, but also the feeling that once restored, visitors to Space Center Houston will increase. And so the public will be able to go see Mission Control, but you'll have to do it through Space Center Houston. So you purchase your ticket through Space Center Houston, and then they will take you out to Mission Control as well as other parts of Johnson Space Center. What's going to be limited is the access to the floor to the consoles. So people, as I said, could go up to the console and get their picture taken. Short of being a U.S. Senator, uh, Ryan Gosling, President of the United States, uh, they are going to limit that. In fact, they will create a barrier, a very low profile barrier at the front of the room to prevent people from going up into the consoles and the public will no longer be able to have their pictures taken at the console. So the general public will be able to see it from the viewing room only. VIPs will get to go down onto the floor, but will not be able to go up onto the consoles. So Space Center Houston is creating a whole visitor experience. So they set the stage at Space Center Houston, and then you board the tram, and as you are driving over to uh, NASA, they talk to you about the lunar programs and mission control. And then when you get into mission control building 30, in the lobby, there will be some exhibits. And then as you go up the stairs, they will start playing the air to ground chatter from Apollo 11. And then when you step into the visitor center, guy will say, and we are now picking up Apollo 11 as the eagle begins its descent. And so that whole um, lunar landing then will play out on the consoles and on the screen in front of you. Yes? So is Space Center Houston where current activity is the monitor from? Um, yes, sort of. Um, <laughs> the reason why I say sort of is Space Center Houston controls the tours currently, but just about everyone on Johnson Space Center's campus has a key and access to that room. And so people who don't even have any business being in Building 30 were able to access that room. So there was the NASA side and the NASA access and then the Space Center Houston side and tourist access. Space Center Houston will still continue uh, to control the tourist access, but NASA has significantly decreased the internal access. Yes? 
again, with regards to the classification of the consoles to and from Texas and here, wouldn't they? What's the advantage of putting them on uh, a very expensive aircraft? <laughs> That's a great question. So the question was, um, as far as transportation uh, from Hutchinson to Houston, um, what's the advantage of utilizing a very expensive government aircraft? Uh, it's all about PR. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, it's all about Carla. And, and so NASA wanted to make a, a really big deal about the arrival of the, of the first resort consoles and devised a, a, a plan to create this event around the return of the console. So um, had they not wanted to do that, we would have trucked them down there as we did when we brought them up here. Um, but because of NASA's desire to have a, a significant PR event, um, which doesn't hurt us either. I mean, we, we get to partake and media will be out there covering the government's arrival and the loading. So, um, okay, sure, we got that. Yeah. Um, so does the console refer to what being done here in this building? Uh, it is not. So for those of you who don't know, our Space Works division is over at 103 North. Whiteside, uh, and we have a, a warehouse and, and shop facility over there. Uh, that's where the consoles are, are being worked on. Um, with this particular project, uh, we don't have any volunteers assisting uh, on it, though we did bring Jim Franco out of retirement for maybe the third or fourth time. <laughs> yes. Back to my previous question, I'm still a little confused sure. as to where. Like the space station is up there now, and the, the launch that was aborted here a couple of weeks ago. Right. Where are those things being monitored? Anybody paying attention to them? Or, I'm <laughs> sure somebody is. So, let me show you. Space Center. So, Space Station is presently being monitored out of this room. So the astronauts, the astronauts in, in Houston, in Houston. So the astronauts and the cosmonauts that are presently on board station are being monitored in this room at Johnson Space Center in Houston. In fact, one floor underneath the historical control. The launch that was aborted was a Russian Soyuz, and so launch control was the, the Russian space program. Uh, so they were the ones who would have been monitoring the launch side of things. Uh, the U.S. rockets that are presently being launched, such as SpaceX, are being monitored by those independent uh, private companies. But any astronaut cosmonaut on board station is being monitored out here. This room that is below the original, yes. is it underground? No, it's not. It's on level two, I believe, uh, of building 30. Other questions? Uh, three, I believe. Is that right? Uh, an American astronaut, a cosmonaut, and a European space Thank So, but three right now. Saw another hand. Are there any? Yes. Are there any fans that will launch our own people to the space station? Yes, so the question was, are there any plans to launch our, our own people to the space station? 
Uh, our astronauts presently go up to the station on Soyuz. Um, so Nick Hague, who was is a, an astronaut and a cancer, uh, was scheduled to launch on Soyuz last week with, with his cosmonaut counterpart uh, when the, the launch was aboard. So the only way that any astronauts, cosmonauts can presently get up to stations is on a Soyuz. Now, our NASA program, our private commercial programs of Boeing's and SpaceX and Blue Origins are all working to develop uh, spacecraft and boosters that will ultimately take our astronauts up to the station and beyond. Um, as an example, um, Victor Glove, who was a NASA classmate of Nick is presently training aboard the SpaceX Dragon. And at the point the SpaceX vehicle passes its tests and is checked out, he will be on board, one, uh, on board the first official flight of the SpaceX taking our astronauts on the station. Um, but we're probably two-ish years away from that, at least. Yeah. I think those have all been pushed back. <laughs> what I have read is that they've been pushed back at least six months. Pardon? No, for um, SpaceX's launch. I think there's confusion between what SpaceX is so two points of clarification. Johnson Space Center in Houston is, is NASA. Space Center Houston, which is right across the street from Johnson Space Center, is a museum that serves as the official visitor center for Johnson Space Center. So the general public can't just go to NASA and try to get in access to tour NASA. The general public goes to Space Center Houston, which is a complex center. Uh, SpaceWorks um, obviously is, is a, it's not an open operation as far as visitation goes, but if somebody is interested at some point in going out, um, just contact uh, the box office and they can make arrangements for you to go out to space use. But it's not a place where you can just show up and knock on the door. You just need to call and make arrangements. Cape Canaveral is uh, down at uh, Florida. So it's Cape Canaveral. Make sure I get this right. Cape Canaveral is the military side of the launch complex, and then Kennedy Space Center is the NASA side of the launch complex, but they're all right there in the same area. I, I've heard that, you know, we don't deal with it on right now. Right. So it is Canaveral, so active. It is. Canaveral is active um, launching uh, military uh, cargo, so 
the Atlas, uh, the Deltas are all launched from Canaveral. Uh, SpaceX um, launches their cargo. Uh, so SpaceX presently does supply cargo up to the space station. Uh, so that is uh, launched out of Canaveral. Um, Blue Origin is building a huge facility, uh, launch complex down there. So there is a lot of activity going on. Um, there's at the present, though, no NASA uh, booster being launched and no man launches taking place. But there's a lot of uh, military satellites, et cetera, being launched from there. I know we find out that we're going to run down there, so I just put it on the NASA website for Kennedy. Yep. They just had a launch at midnight on the 17th, and that was to go up and see some, do some satellite work. Right. And then if you go online, I think they listed another one on October 26th at 4 a.m. in the morning in Northrop Grumman, uh, Pegasus 15 icon. So they do have one to do right here, but it's not me. Right. Yes. Uh, do you have any information on Space Force? Um, the question was, do we have any information on Space Force? Um, the answer is no. Um, I've got my own opinions on Space Force, <laughs> but Space Force at a minimum has at least put topic of space in the media, which is good for us. Yes? The astronauts that are going up to the space station, where are they trained and prepared for their mission? Where, where's kind of the central training center where they learn all the intricacies? Right. So the question was, are astronauts that do go up to the station, where do they train? They train at Johnson Space Center. So the Johnson Space Center there in Houston is the central training facility for our astronauts. But then they also spend extensive time in Russia. Uh, Nick was over there for six months. So Nick Hagen, who was supposed to, uh, would have gone up uh, last week, was over there for six months. So uh, they spend extensive time in Houston, extensive time in Russia, and then probably some time down in the Cape as well. But as far as the training goes, central location is Johnson Space Center. So when they train for their spacewalks, that's done in uh, the neutral buoyant lab. Uh, so the big pool, um, that's all there at uh, Johnson Space Yes? Uh, you said you had your own. Yes. I think... Um, to try and create another branch of military is probably a waste of taxpayer dollars. Um, to try and develop uh, a branch that controls the, the heavens, if you will, um, to my opinion, is, is loading bureaucracy more than it is. Um, space is neutral. Um, there is no country that governs space. Um, a lot of what the Space Force would do is already being done by other branches of the military. Um, so, I, while it's a, a cute topic, I, I think it's a gimmick, and I, I don't, I don't think it's relevant. 
have an opinion. I'm, I'm not the expert by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, Space Command out at NORA and NORTHCOM, they, they do monitor everything that's in space and work across all branches and countries. But um, one of the interesting ways I was told to think about it is you have air breathing and then you have non-air breathing, right? So you have like aircraft and then you have space. So they're saying that's such a difference, you need it to be its own branch. That would be kind of like saying that submarines and underwater needs to be its own branch and not with the name. Because there's the same like demarcation line of is it underwater or is it on water versus is it in the atmosphere or above the atmosphere? I don't know. But I agree, I think it's kind of I don't know that we need it. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's a superficial question. Yes. Yes. Uh, Hoxie. Hoxie. Yeah. In fact, Tracy was at the launch party in Hoxie. Um, no, no, in, in Peabody. Peabody. Yeah. We went to school at Hoxie and Peabody. And Peabody. Yeah. So the question was where is Kansas astronaut Nick Haig from? Hoxie went to school in Hoxie and Peabody. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, me. That's me. So the comment was that one of our instructors over at HCC, his son-in-law, uh, works at the MDL training, helping to train the astronauts uh, for their APPAs. If I can make a couple of comments here real quick. Um, if you want to stay up with the news and events surrounding the MOGA restoration, a great way is to sign up for our print newsletter. If you don't already receive that, um, and I'd be happy to chat with anyone who'd like to get on that list after this. Um, the other way is we have two podcasts. One run by the Hutch News called Cosmic Chat. So you go to their site, it's on there. Or we have the Cosmosphere podcast hosted by John Mulnix, and he has done several updates on the MOCA restoration. Another great way is on social media. Watch for our hashtag history in the remaking updates. It's a good way to do it. And in general, the news. KMUW just did a story last week out of Wichita on the restoration. Hutch News has done several. We've had pieces in Houston and Miami. All of them. We've been pretty excited about this stuff. So. That's why they're flying a guppy to get the consoles. <laughs> Thanks, Carla. All right, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the Thank you for listening to the Cosmosphere podcast. Make sure you share and subscribe to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review on iTunes. They're crucial to the success of podcasts, so we'd appreciate it if you could take just a minute to leave a rating or review. They help more people find out about the podcast and the museum. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Mulnix.